when you do TV, you definitely feel like you're one side of the screen and your audience on the other. With podcasting, that sort of division blurs, doesn't it? And the feedback, it's a wonderful conversation. It's like being in this big extended community and family where you're all sharing stuff. With wine, you need that because there is never that sort of set hard and fast, this is it, gone, done. It's always, wine is a conversation and podcasts tap into that beautifully and brilliantly. And I think that's why it's so exciting. have a thirst to learn about wine? Do you love stories about wonderfully obsessive people, hauntingly beautiful places, and amusingly awkward social situations? Well, that's the blend here on the Unreserved Wine Talk podcast. I'm your host, Natalie McLean, and each week I share with you unfiltered conversations with celebrities in the wine world, as well as confessions from my own tipsy journey as I write my third book on this subject. I'm so glad you're here. Now pass me that bottle, please, and let's get started. Welcome to episode 118. Why are podcasts one of the best ways to learn about wine? How do English or British sparkling wines compare to champagne, and why should you seek them out? Why is the Master of Wine qualification valuable beyond the studies required? And what's behind the exceptionally low pass rate for the Master of Wine exam? This week on the Unreserved Wine Talk podcast, our guests Susie Berry and Peter Richards are back for part two of this lively conversation that we started last week, and they have more colorful stories to share with you from their brilliant careers. I've got a bonus for you. In addition to this podcast, I'd love for you to join me for the premiere watch party of the video of this conversation that I'll be live streaming for the very first time on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube on Wednesday, March 10th at 7 p.m. Eastern. The video will show you the pictures and other visual elements that we discuss in this podcast. And in fact, we jump right into a screen sharing of different photos from their career at the beginning of the podcast. It's like the Netflix version of the podcast. Plus, you can talk to me, ask me questions in real time as we watch it together. You can also see what other people thought of this conversation and the answers to their questions. Now, before I introduce Susie and Peter, I want to let you know that you can win a prize pack that includes a personally signed copy of their book on English wine, a lovely, lovely linen polishing cloth for your wine stemware, and a very cheeky chef's apron that says on the front, like it fresh and racy? I'll select the winner from those of you who participate before March 10th. I'll also reshare your stories and posts with my followers, so whether or not you win, you get to connect with more wine lovers. All you have to do is pick your favorite social media channel, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn, and post a wine that you love and tag me before March 10th. I'll post all of this in the show notes at nataliemcclain.com forward slash 118. In the show notes, you'll also find a full transcript of our conversation, how you can join me in a free online wine and food pairing class, where you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube Live every Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. Eastern, including this evening and next week. And that's all in the show notes at nataliemcclain.com forward slash 118. And now, on a personal note before we dive into the show, 
I can always tell when the effect of the second glass of wine has kicked in. That's when I start fashion surfing on the web. If I'm still on the computer versus socializing with humans. I've bookmarked the websites of my favorite designers, Olivia and Alice, Judith and Charles, Mark Kane and Michael Kors. They sound like dinner party guests that I should be socializing with, but what are you going to do during a lockdown? But even pre-COVID, I used to surf these sites, not so much to buy, but to look. I love beautiful things, whether it's a blouse, a sunset, or a great glass of wine. I don't think the pursuit of beauty is frivolous. I think it's essential to living fully and being happy. Okay, on with the show. This is the Winchester Festival that we're looking at now. I love the uh, little tattoos or whatever that you put on your face and definitely the fun atmosphere. Now, you had to move this online due to COVID this year. How did that work? Yeah, so so the wine festival we started twenty fourteen. It's a, it's an annual festival that takes place at the end of November. And Winchester's lucky. Winchester is the historic capital of England. It's a very very ancient city. It's beautiful, lovely to visit at Christmas. We have the most wonderful Christmas market and ice rink, and the cathedral's just magical. One of the buildings we have is the Guildhall, and the photo that you've got up now is of the Guildhall. We have these wonderful large spaces, historic, beautiful perfect place to have a wine festival and especially in winter you need it to be indoors in a nice place the photo before you showed was actually a, a summer festival which we did which was a bit of a spin-off that was another festival in winchester that we took a bar from we took a wine know, sort festival, of a wine wine festival bar. bar but it's um, always the same the, yeah the idea is have the, fun the big one's the festival in in november yeah. and yeah last year we just couldn't believe that we couldn't do it it's one of those strange feelings isn't it you think we're not going to be able to do this and we've done it for five or six years now every year we've built up this lovely following of people who almost feel like they own it now going back to what we were saying before about people walking in on the first time we ever did it and not having a clue what to do now they all walk in and they've done it and they know what they're doing and they're bringing um, a minibus they, of their friends yeah, they, and family yeah. so that's but then we couldn't do it so we thought we personally had the choice either we do nothing or we try and make something happen that gives people something to look forward to and a bit of fun and we knew it wasn't going to be the same it's never going to be the same as getting everybody together for the festival but we were determined that we would do something and we did you know so we took it online it was successful so that was lovely yeah yeah. Um, we got lots of people joining in on it and I mean essentially what we did was we, we asked all our exhibitors, if they wanted to do their own masterclass, they videoed a masterclass and then we played it all out live on the day. We had one big day and we had sort of people doing all sorts of different things. So they videoed themselves all over the country, whether it's Bristol or Oxford or wherever, you know, and obviously the people watching, they could have ordered the wines in advance to taste along. So it was, it was something completely different, a completely different model. But, you know, we're all getting used to slightly different things now, aren't we? And, and what's interesting is how many of these will stick. Obviously, some of these are really positive things. They're great things. The fact we can probably travel a bit less and talk to winemakers in New Zealand and have a tasting with them is fantastic. There's still nothing, though, that substitutes that really replaces the joy of getting together. As Susie was saying, the people at the festival almost feels like family now. It's a, it's a kind of 2000 strong family. So it's not the same. Equally, there's a value in being positive and making things happen and bringing a smile to people's faces and helping, frankly, also our exhibitors sell some wine. So, you know, we had everything from Quinta de Naval Port to Louis de Burgundy to Razzaris, uh, Chile, wines. lots of English wines. And people could taste along. And, and, you know, we actually, 
had more participation than we could have had at the real event because obviously that's limited by numbers and venue capacity. capacity yeah. uh, we have more people logging on, which was fantastic. And obviously, there's still the videos are still up online. Oh, they can still watch them. People can still go to. Yeah, it's on the website is thewinefestival.co.uk. Okay. We've still got the new ones up. So the the online masterclasses, they're sort of 25-minute masterclasses. They're still up there, so you can go and check them out. They're quite fun. But yeah, who knows where this will go? Hopefully, things will be back to normal soon. If not, you know, maybe there's a hybrid model that we can all adopt. But yeah, I think... Everybody's learning all the time, aren't they, really, with um, the whole situation? I think, you know, COVID has been an accelerant that has, in particular, moved the wine industry ahead a decade in terms of technology and online. So... In some ways, it's been good, but of course, we don't wish for all the uh, the negatives and so on. So I love this little photo album that I have here. Okay, so you're both speakers. Is that Oz? That's Oz. That's Oz, Oz. Clark. This okay. is one of the lunches for the YGB Awards. I'm a chair of the YGB Awards and Oz is a co-chair. So this was a lunch in Wimbledon at Canizaro House where we were announcing all the award-winning wines. So it's a fantastic competition. I absolutely love it. Going back, though, to the whole situation last year and that continues, we normally would judge this in London with probably a dozen tasters. And it's all, you know, sort of 300 English wines, whether sparkling still, whatever. And this year, obviously, we couldn't do that because we couldn't get people together in London and that number of people. So it ended up, and this was one of my positives from last year, that we did it at a winery in Sussex called Ashling Park which is beautiful. And it was just three judges, Oz, myself and our colleague and friend, Rebecca Palmer from Corny and Barrow. And we had a week of all just judging wines in what was effectively like an aircraft hangar, but an open fronted one. And the weather was stunning. I mean, she sold um, it to me as a hardworking week. <laughs> it, was, like, it was basically it was a holiday beautiful moments on the a, Riviera. In a, in a difficult year. Yeah, she even had yeah. a personalised portaloo. I did have a personalised portaloo. You had your own toilet. <laughs> I'm going to translate for North America here, but... One, one of those, of those mobile toilets. The, the, the builders yeah. have, but yeah. it had Susie Barry and W on there. <laughs> a little star as well. Expects <laughs> the same no. treatment now, Natalie. You know, so where's my personal life toilet? Where's my personal toilet? <laughs> yes, exactly. Why not? And Peter, you've also been a speaker at various events, leading tastings. You do the same, Natalie. I think that, that buzz we all get as wine communicators from being with people and talking with them and enjoying wine and raising a glass together and hearing people's questions and trying to help them, hearing people's concerns, hearing when they don't like wines and their complaints, you know, it's what makes wine human. It's what I think gets us most excited as wine communicators. There's nothing like the buzz of a live crowd and having fun with wine, is there? No, exactly. And the wine, it's fun because all your jokes start to land near the end of the evening or maybe midway through, depending on how much they're consuming. Yeah, you can goodness. force people to laugh at your jokes. Uh, but that, <laughs> exactly. that one was actually funny up on Riviera. We've, we've done a lot of consultancy for various different people. And that was on a Riviera wine cruise. So you were cruising, I think, from memory serves along the Rhine. And you've got those amazing, as you know, the steep terraces of the Rhine with the vineyards on. And you're tasting the wine that's coming from these vineyards as you cruise along in a boat. It doesn't get more magical. Beautiful. Oh, my goodness. This is Wine Blast. Here we go. Let's get the title up there. Yeah, that's great. I love the photos of you, too. You guys really interact off each other. But yeah, you've done so well. When did you launch your podcast? So it had been about two years in the thinking, Natalie. I don't know how long you took. It takes a lot to get to that point, doesn't it, of actually launching. It really does. You know know what it takes. And I think 
often people don't quite understand what goes into a proper podcast. But anyway, so we'd been thinking about it for about two years and we got to the point, I think it was when lockdown happened in March last year, we were sort of ready to launch in about May. We knew what we were going to be doing. We had sort of six episodes planned. We'd recorded a couple of them and we were ready to launch in May. And as soon as lockdown happened, we just kind of went, this is crazy. We just need to get launched. Get on with it while people are at home, while we've got time to actually put towards it. And so we did it in April last year. And a lot of the first episodes of Wine Blast were to do with talking to people in all sorts of parts of the world, but about their situation given lockdown mm. and given coronavirus. Mm. So whether it was a winemaker or a wine retailer or whoever. So we did these sort of little shorts of those kind of people. And we kind of put the real wine blast slightly on hold. And obviously we're back with that now. Yeah, we have kind of launched in tandem with the pandemic, I'm afraid. It was, it was an, <laughs> yeah. But it was fun because, you know, you were, again, trying to make something positive happen. Although it was funny, wasn't it? Because, you know, we're positive newbies compared to you, Natalie. You've been going since 2018, I think. Is that right? Oh, Warby? yeah, yeah. I'm ancient. You no, know, you're not ancient, <laughs> no, but you're, no, you're, you're, you do a brilliant job. Yes, exactly. Thank you. you know, it is definitely, it was something that, you know, we've been lucky enough to do lots of broadcasting work like you have. So we've been lucky enough to do lots of telly and, and filming and radio as well. But we definitely, for us, you know, when we finished Saturday Kitchen after 12 years of doing lots of TV, we thought, actually, let's try and use this time to explore things that we're passionate about. And we definitely felt that radio or podcasting was a medium that suited wine so well. As you've said, it's, it's a very intimate medium where you need trust, you need to use your imagination. And I think TV can be a bit passive. You sit there and you receive the images and it's therefore hard to make wine come across. Whereas with podcasting and radio, you're already using those mental powers of imagination being such an intimate medium to kind of be there with the host. So we thought this is something we've wanted to do for a while. So yeah, Susie said we took a while to sort of build up to it, but in the end it kind of went. And then suddenly we, you know, it's been the most wild, crazy ride and it's been so fun. And as you know, you know, we're doing this, this is podcasting we find so collaborative and wine is collaborative. And you put that together with podcasting. Podcasting is collaborative in a way that I've never experienced before, Mm. though. You know, people come to you like you coming to us and saying, we go on your show, you'd like to come on our show, which is fantastic. I've never experienced that, not not even just in wine, but in anything I've ever worked in. People genuinely want each other's podcasts to do well. And that's the spirit you do it in. And you think that's so refreshing and really lovely. That's right. It's not a zero-sum game. The rising tide lifts all the boats because the more we can make wine lovers aware that podcasts are a great way to learn about wine, the better for all of us. Because as you know, we were talking earlier just before we hit record, people listen to more than one podcast, so they've got a playlist. So a collaboration Absolutely. makes so much sense. Let's make it all about wine. <laughs> yeah, and, and then because it's so intimate, it's so personal that each of us has our own style of talking about wine. And there's so many different ways to learn about wine, to communicate about wine, to listen to wine, to enjoy wine. There's room for those different styles. And I think that it seems like early days as well in podcasting, doesn't it? Podcasting is growing massively. Oh, yes. I don't know what the stats are, but there's, I don't know, 30 million or billion blogs, but there's less than a million podcasts, all subjects. But if you look at those that are still active, it's more like maybe two or 300,000. It's in its infancy still. And if you look at other stats, most people finish either like 75% or more of a podcast that can be 30 minutes to an hour. The engagement is unlike anything you see on social media. 
Sure, yeah. Absolutely. And I think it's an interesting because podcasting almost feels like an extension of social media in a funny way. It's true. But at the same time, the rules are very different and it feels much more wholesome. It feels more positive. It feels more supportive and collaborative. There's a sense of community, isn't it, between you as the presenter and your audience. Of course, you're recording this. I mean, we're lucky we've got both of us in the house and so we're doing that. But, you know, you, feel, you can feel a bit isolated. And when you do TV, you definitely feel like you're one side of the screen and your audience on the other. With podcasting, that sort of division blurs, doesn't it? And the feedback, it's a wonderful conversation. It's like being in this big extended community and family where you're all sharing stuff. And sometimes people might disagree with what you're saying and they'll say it, or they might do the opposite and say something nice. But either way, it just feels like this ongoing conversation, which is so lovely. And with wine, you need that because there is never that sort of set hard and fast. This is it, gone, done. It's always wine is a conversation and podcasts tap into that beautifully and brilliantly. And I think that's why it's so exciting. Absolutely. I think the last picture. Oh, yes. So I want to mention this right now again. Here's your wonderful book on English wine that our viewers and listeners can win. So we have the book on English wine, we have the polishing cloth, the linen polishing cloth, and of course, that cheeky apron. Do you like it fresh and racy? So (laughs) whether you're listening to this on the podcast or live on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, basically just tag us and tell us what wine you're enjoying lately. Bonus points if you tag some wine-loving friends and tag us and use the hashtags WineBlast and Natacans. So let's talk just a little bit about English wine, because we're not as familiar with it here in North America. Give us a sense of the scope or the size of English wine and what's happening lately. Well, I mean, I should let you handle this, but I have boned up on a few figures. But the key thing to say is it's so exciting. Things really happen fast in the world of wine, do they? So to see the category of English and Welsh wine emerge like it has done over the past decade, not much more, with the quality it has and the excitement and the diversity has been thrilling, you know, because this for wine is a world which moves slowly. It's one harvest a year. It's hard to really have an entire category emerge from virtually nothing and take the wine world by storm, which I think is what English and Welsh wine is is doing. Mm. So the vineyards quadrupled since the year 2000. It's now about three and a half thousand hectares, which is in the global scheme of things it's nothing it's 0.1% of the global vineyard it's about 10% of champagne's vineyard for example it's two-thirds sparkling wine so sparkling wine is the main thing that we do and production has averaged in the last five years about seven and a half million bottles it's sort of funny when you say it averages because we went from something (laughs) like five-ish million to 14 million in 2018 and then you go back down a bit so I mean, it's extreme because we have such a kind of marginal climate. You know, if you get a great vintage, it's a whopper, but mostly, you know, it's not. So actually that seven is a strange average, if you know what I mean, because most years are not that average at all. I think probably we'll end up in the next few years, depending on how good the harvests are. I mean, around about 10, probably, won't we? 10 million bottles. Yes. And, and, you know, again, you, you say champagne's what, 300 million, isn't it? Well, this year it's a bit less. But no, production or releases. Yeah. So it's a very, very small category still. But it's interesting because, you know, exports are really starting to grow. And I think that producers see this as a really good target. It's about 10% of production at the moment is exported, which is not very much, but it's a lot more than, than what it was. was. And interestingly enough, the top market, I think, is Denmark. But beyond that, the second and third markets tied in second place are the US and Canada. So A lot of the stuff that does get exported does come your way. So, you know, you can find these things. And what people might look out for are traditional methods, sparkling wines, definitely. And 
they tend, there's a terribly broad generalization. They have an incredible acidity to them, but it's a very specific style of really beautifully tangy acidity. And then I always think they have a kind of an orchard character, sort of an apples and pears in the summer afternoon kind of feel that seems very English. And they are very high quality. I mean, obviously, then within that, you've got your Blanc de Blanc, you've got Blanc de Noir, you've got non-vintage, you've got Prestige Cuvée, there's Rosé, obviously. So there's everything. I think that that is still where we do the best job. There are then people entering the market with more kind of Charmat methods of sparkling wines and very intriguing packaging. But then also the area that is really coming to the fore and seeing some real interest are the still wines because we've had some good harvests. So if England is hot enough, then we get some great opportunities to make still wines in every colour. Certainly the Chardonnays are looking world-class. Pinot Noir is starting to really shine as well. So And some lovely rosé. And some lovely rosé and some even some sweets. I mean, funnily enough, there are parallels you could draw between some areas of Canada as well. I don't think we'll ever beat Canada's sweet wines. We're not, we're not doing ice wine particularly well yet. We won't send you all our cold. <laughs> yeah, it's a trade-off. You know, but, you know, all these areas where I think we're pushing the, the, the climatic extremes. Yes. You know, but cool climate, cool climate winemaking is so exciting, you know. It is. It's edgy. It's nervy and edgy, yeah. You yeah. get that yeah. extended growing season. There's often an intensity to the wines because of that extended growing season that is really, really interesting. And I think that these days we're looking for wines that are more refreshing and more gastronomic and lower in alcohol. And these kind of areas like England, like Canada, certain areas of Canada, it's hard to generalise, isn't it? Is what can be delivered by these, these, these kind of areas. And, and that's exciting. Absolutely. And I loved Susie's description of English sparkling wines. How would you differentiate them from champagne? Because people make comparisons all the time because you're so close, but also the limestone soils that sort of thing, the dominance of sparkling, but how would you differentiate them for consumers? It's very difficult to generalise a differentiation. And I think particularly now, Natalie, I mean, there may have been in the recent past, it might have been easier to differentiate them. But I think the quality of English wines now, sparkling wines, is on such a par with champagne. It kind of depends who makes them. So like, we might know somebody who makes an incredible sort of barrel aged and top quality grapes and lees aging for ages. So they've got a very rich style of fizz. We might know somebody else in England who is making the crispest, most aperitif style um, in a very lean and taut kind of way. So I think it is hard to say there's a definite, I know that's English and I know that's champagne, but I would come back to the style of the acidity be the big thing for me. It's spine tingling in a great English sparkling wine. It almost teeters on too much, but when they're just at the right side of too much and they're not too much, it's really thrilling. Mm -hmm. Having said that, a great champagne is something that you just relax into and so self-assured. You know, the experience is there mm. to make something that you feel so confident yeah. about drinking. There can be an element of sort of um, rusticity is going to sound wrong. There's an element of unbridled intensity sometimes to English fizz, which can be good and bad. And I think it's partly, as we've said, you know, the, the intensity of the acidity, which is like biting into a beautiful Cox's apple or something, you know, from a cool climate. But allied to this very, very long growing season because it's cooler and also very low yield. So I think if you look at the average yield in the UK, it's much, so much lower champagne, than yeah. champagne. Yeah. The combination of all of those factors means you get an intensity in the wines. And sometimes that can be too much. But there is often that kind of 
edgy energy to a lot of English wines, which you can just slightly pick out. Champagne will often have the edges will be smoothed over. It will be much more self-assured and polished, whereas the English wine will often just be you know, that, that kind of unruly child the in the block. corner, which is slightly misbehaving, but also just yes. really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. There's so much more I want to cover, but let's just touch briefly on the Master of Wine program because you're both Masters of Wine. First time you've passed it on the first try, which most people don't. Talk to us a bit about what it is for people who don't know what this program is and why the pass rate is so low. You've said yourselves, more people have been to outer space than who are MWs, which is, I love that comparison. So Slightly crazy, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, space is pretty crowded these days. Actually, so. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Well, with Elon Musk, he'll be wanting to do an MW. No, no, no. <laughs> if mean, he gets his way. It's, yes, yes, it's a low pass rate. I think the Institute is trying really hard to get that pass rate up without compromising standards, you know, and I think that the value of the MW is, I think, not just what you learn, even though that's massive, because I think in wine, it's quite easy to think, you know, I get it. I understand it. But there's always more things to learn. So I think what the MW teaches you is to be humble and to sort of say, I'm never going to know it all and be aware of the limitations of what you know. It teaches you to question everything, ask questions, 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 which I definitely learned from doing it. You know, just ask. You know, if somebody says, well, we use clone so and so, so and so, so and so, why? Because it gives us a better yield. Why does it give you a better yield? You know, it's a keep asking the questions, which I always used to take an answer and go, okay, great, lovely, and wrote it down. But now, you know, I wouldn't do that. I would go, no, I don't I don't understand. I need to know a bit more and a bit more. It makes you really question everything. I think also um, just an analytical sorry. mindset to everything, quantifying, qualitative as well. It's a way of thinking. And I think that often you don't know that that kind of instruction is going to help you, but it really, really does. And I think that it's a way of thinking about yourself and about wine, which is tremendously healthy and positive, it's a life-changing experience. And I think that it's difficult to sum it up in one package as to why it helps. I mean, going back to why it's so difficult to pass, I mean, I think it's a lot of study. And if people are working full-time, that's really hard to give enough time to the study. And it's not only a lot of study, it's a lot of study of lots of different areas. So for anybody listening who, who's not familiar, you have to sit a paper on viticulture and vinification and business of wine and contemporary issues. You have to take three tasting papers, one on white wines, one on red wines, one on whatever that you know it could be a mixed bag and those are all blind you then have to pass well, I think it's a research paper now isn't it? it used to be a dissertation it's a research paper so there's so many elements to it that you have to invest an awful lot of money time energy um sacrifice family life perhaps I think this makes it all very difficult it's not just that what you're doing is difficult it's everything around it that makes it very hard and I think therefore getting a high pass rate is unlikely to ever happen. I think it will go up, but it's never going to be really high. Mm. And I think, I think it's, as we've said, it's not about saying, I know everything about wine. It's quite the opposite. It's, it's realising your limitations and saying, I'm open to that, but how do I learn effectively? And how, more importantly, can I help others? Because a lot of the MW programme is about altruism, is about helping other people. This code of conduct you sign up to is, I will do this properly. And I have a responsibility and we all take that very seriously. So you mentor other people through the program and help them if they have difficulties. It is a distance learning program. You're not sort of super hands on, 
But there is that wonderful feeling of being able to help other people. We, for 10 years after we finished, ran a Master of Wine student boot camp. So we sort of tutored people, came to Winchester. It wasn't us who called it a boot camp. It was christened that by some of the students. <laughs> uh, we were just, we were asked to do it by some students we'd studied with who hadn't got through. And it was terrifying because we had to stand up in front of probably some of the best tasters in the world and supposedly tutor them. And it wasn't really us tutoring them. It was us working with them to work out the best strategies to help them get the best out of themselves. And that we found tremendously rewarding. And that's what we tried to keep going with. That's what we feel a responsibility beholden on us as MWs is to help other people. And that can be, you know, helping a master of wine student to helping the person on the street who just wants your help. He doesn't really care about, just wants a recommendation of something they can enjoy. That's really simple. Actually, that's something we should say, though. Mm -hmm. When we were studying the Master of Wine, we were given so much help by people. And you think that is incredible. You know, people's time and energy. And I was blown away, really, by the generosity of certain people that helped us pass, really. And I think that that's one of the things we talked about, not being afraid to make mistakes earlier as being a good teaching method. Well, it's the same. Doing the MW forces you to learn to ask for help and that really puts you in good stead, I think, in the wine world, because we all need to help each other. You can't just be doing stuff by yourself. This is a collaborative endeavor, and that sort of really helps cement that understanding. Oh, that's wonderful. I love that. Anyone listening is thinking of doing the MW, we would recommend it from the rooftops. It is the most fantastic journey of discovery about yourself, about wine. And we would absolutely, the one thing you have to do is just make sure you have enough time to devote to it. But it's just one of the magical ways of really discovering wine. And we were on the course with quite a few people who weren't in the wine trade at all, lawyers, architects, and they were just doing it for the love of wine. And <laughs> they must you know, be mad. it was just, you know, so if anyone's out there, think you're doing it, get in touch if they want to. But if not, come on, just think, you know, this is an option. Give it a go. It's great fun. That's great. Great encouragement. And so just a couple last questions. If you could share a bottle of wine with anyone in the world, living or dead, who would that be? I don't know if it'd be the same or different for each of you, but who would be at the table? It would definitely be different for each of you. It would definitely be different. <laughs> <laughs> that is red. So. You should see the kind of books that he reads and I read, Natalie. <laughs> mm, okay. <laughs> I did think a little bit about this. And, you know, this is a really random choice, but I'd love to sit down and share a bottle of wine with Kristen Scott Thomas. Because I just think she's the most beautiful, um, intriguing, I think, I imagine very intelligent. I think she's a fantastic actress. She sort of flies under the radar and I just think she's amazing. I loved her in The English Patient. She was brilliant. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, just sitting and being able to ask her things, it would be amazing. And I know it's, it's not an obvious choice, but yeah, I like it. I think she's fabulous. Wonderful. So I'm going to have to do something to contrast with that, but I'm just reading the final instalment in the Hilary Mantel trilogy, actually. So Henry VIII, what an option for a man from history, if I'm thinking history. But talking about people from history who like their wine, so we'd have something to talk about. Alexander the Great, how cool would that be? Uh, he definitely liked his drink, didn't he? Thomas Jefferson, you know, some of these people from history. Jefferson think, Bottles. You know, he clearly him. took an interest in food and drink. He would be just fascinating to talk to. I don't know, someone like that. But it's an endless question because there'd be so many people, really, when you start to think about it, aren't there? That'd be quite a rowdy dinner table party. Just... <laughs> Henry VIII and Kristen Scott Thomas. <laughs> Kristen and I would be quietly in the corner, enjoying our glass of sponsors. We'd definitely... be eyeing her as a new wife. <laughs> yes, 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 exactly, yeah. How would she end up? Who knows? Uh, we'd have to keep Alexander the Great and Henry VIII apart, I think. So the That's seating true. plan 
would be a difficult one. Carefully yeah. monitored. No, no. Kristen Scott Thomas, she'd never lose her head, though. Sorry. No. Uh, anyway, last one. If you could be any type of wine, what would you choose? Oh, my goodness me. Well, you'd have to be. I'd be champagne. You'd be champagne. I really would, yeah. Why is I'd, that? Bubbles make me happy. I feel like I'd want to be overflowing with happy bubbles. <laughs> In my life, if I could do that every day and I don't, it's a lesson to myself. It's a note to myself. Be more effervescent, be happier, be more bubbly. Um, because, you know, why not? Life's short. It is. It is. And we're not promised tomorrow. How about you, Peter? I would be an increasingly full bodied red. Uh, <laughs> that's the way my life seems to be going, Natalie. So um, I don't know. I'd like to think I could carry off being something like a Brunello, which I know is a special kind of wine for you. Yes. Your first amazing wine, Epiphanies, was Brunello, wasn't it? So I've been thinking about that. Brunello or a Barbaresco or a Barolo, but I'd probably be more a kind of Shiraz that's kind of getting a little bit loose around the edges, a little bit, a <laughs> little bit, you know, over mature now, a bit tired. <laughs> Sounds like something you could watch with The Simpsons. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there you go. That's all I need to be. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> Is there anything we haven't covered that you'd like to mention as we wrap up? I don't think so. You've been so so lovely asking us so many lovely questions. Oh, you guys, I could go on for another couple hours. But anyway, it's terrific talking with you. Now, tell us where we can get in touch with you online. I think probably social media is probably the best place. So on Instagram, we're Susie and Peter. Twitter, I'm Wine Schools and she's Susie Barry. They're probably the best places to get hold of us. But other than that, we have our website, which is susieandpeter.com. Yeah, or the podcast, you know, if you listen to Wine Blast, yeah. then, then you can get in touch with us through that as well. Uh, we've even got that wonderful, the magic of speak pipe, that little button you can press and people can ping their messages across, which we've recently discovered and got very excited by. So <laughs> if anyone wants to send us voice messages, hopefully nothing so too on, angry. This is, this is uh, on, on the podcast page of our website. There's a little orange you button that, and you can yeah. just send us a message, which is uh, we love to get. Yeah, yeah. That is great. I'm going to post all of these contacts and your websites in the show notes for the podcast. So people will know how to connect with you. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you, Natalie. Well, thank you, Susie Peter. This was a great conversation. I just loved it. I love your energy and your passion. I'm I'm so pleased that more people will know about what you do, who you are, and get to connect with you now. You're very kind. Thank you so much indeed for thank all of you. this. It's been such fun. Oh, absolutely. Okay, take care. Bye for now. Bye. Well, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Susie and Peter. Here are my takeaways. Number one, I love how Susie and Peter pivoted with COVID and hosted their popular wine festival online. You can watch those video recordings of the sessions they hosted. I'll link to that in the show notes at nataliemclean.com forward slash 118. Two, I so agree with them that podcasts are one of the best ways to learn about wine. I'm biased, of course. But it's such an intimate medium that lends itself to more in-depth learning. Three, I found their discussion about English sparkling wines helpful, and I'm determined to taste more of them when I can find them going forward. And four, Susie and Peter make some excellent points on why the Master of Wine qualification is valuable beyond the studies required to achieve the credential. I love that probative skill of asking the question beyond the first question and challenging received wisdom. In the show notes, you'll find how you can win a prize pack that includes a personally signed copy of their book on English wine, a lovely linen polishing cloth for your wine stemware, 
and a cheeky chef's apron if you post on your favorite social media channel before March 10th and tag me. A full transcript of our conversation, how you can join me in a free online wine and food pairing class, where you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube live every Wednesday at 7 p.m., including this evening. And that's all in the show notes at nataliemcclain.com forward slash 118. You won't want to miss next week when I chat with Vanessa Conlon and Amanda McCrossin. Amanda was formerly a wine director at several popular Napa Valley restaurants where she worked with the world's largest restaurant collection of Napa Valley wines. Vanessa is head of wine for Wine Access Wine Club and formerly worked for several of Napa's most prestigious luxury wine estates. She became a master of wine in 2020. Prior to falling in love with wine, they both were musical performers in New York City before they moved across the country to Napa Valley. They have great stories and tasting tips to share with you next week. In the meantime, if you missed episode 93, go back and take a listen. I chat with another Brit who's also a master of wine, Jane Masters, about her journey through the program and her insider tasting tips. I'll share a short clip with you now to whet your appetite. I think scores are important, but I don't think they're the be-all and end-all. I think what is very important is that people find the wines that they enjoy and that the description of the wines, what they taste like and what they go with is more beneficial, of more use, more value to our members. So I like to focus on those descriptions and that people can find if they enjoy a Sauvignon from a particular region that we've got alternative things that they might enjoy of a similar style. Sauvignons from other regions or maybe other great varieties which fall into that sort of category. So I do score wines. I score them out of 20 for my own benefit. And again, you know, if you're looking at scores that anyone has written, you have to understand the context in which they've done it. So Absolutely. my scores are not absolute scores. They're scored in terms of the price of the wine and the value for money that it offers. So I prefer to actually concentrate on what the wines actually taste like than publishing scores. If you like this episode, please tell one friend about it this week, especially someone you know who'd be interested in the tips that Susie and Peter shared. Thank you for taking the time to join me here. I hope something great is in your glass this week. Post on social media about it, and you could win their prize pack. You don't want to miss one juicy episode of this podcast, especially the secret full-bodied bonus episodes that I don't announce on social media. So subscribe for free now at nataliemcclain.com forward slash subscribe. Meet me here next week. Cheers. Cheers.